Okay, I think we're going to continue our studies here in the book of the Revelation. Um, we've been uh, studying the book of the Revelation for a long time, and I'm, I'm really uh, not wanting to finish it up. Um, there's so much here uh, to think about. And one of the things that comes to my mind is the fact that by nature, we do not know anything about the future, even a moment away. We have no idea what's going to happen. And the Bible, in numbers of places, speak about this. Uh, we've looked at, at Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1 a number of times. We do not know what a day is going to bring forth. That is the human condition. But it's also human nature to want to know the future. So much so that we're preoccupied with it. But we're trying to fill up the future with our own thoughts in our own ways. And that's a mistake. And the reason it's a mistake is because of what the Lord said in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And he, now listen to this, he is the only one in the universe that knows the future. and can have his will done. He's the only one that can do that. You see, the only way that you can have your will done is you have to have the attributes of God where you control the entire universe and what goes on in it. If you can't do that, then you cannot possibly know what a day will bring forth. Because something can happen, either with other people or circumstances. There's so many things that affect the future, but you have to be able to control it for your will to be done. Now, I hope you're following the logic of what is being said because um, it's so important in terms of the desperate necessity on our part to believe this book. Because this book has been given to us by uh, the omniscient God, meaning he knows all things. It is written by the one who is omnipresent. In other words, eternity is not beyond his borders. He is the eternal God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, totally controlling 
a universe that has no borders. We can't really fit that into our minds because we can't think of anything that does not have an end but with our imagination. But God is without end. He's without beginning of days or end of life, eternal. God has given us an imagination for the purpose of embracing uh, who he is and what he is. And it's only with an imagination that we can imagine the glory of God. But God has written a book, the Bible, and the whole Bible is prophecy concerning the future. Now, here's what's interesting. How many people study it on a regular basis? How many people get up every day and the first thing that comes to mind is, well, let's see, what have I got to do today? What am I going to do today? Isn't that the way we think? It certainly is. And we do not know what a day may bring forth. Therefore, when it comes to an expected end, that's uh, not available to us. The only way you can have an expected end is to have the intelligence and the power to control every element in an endless universe then you can. And that's why God could write a book about the future with rigid accuracy. And it's going to happen. But how many people believe that? Not many. Very few. I plead with the children in chapel almost every day that I speak to them about the need for discipline in their life to get up early, set the clock, arrange your life around God because the future uh, is really in his hands even as it relates to you. We do not know how long we're going to live. We get up there every day. We do not know whether we're going to make it through the day or not. I cannot tell you how many times I have ridden down Bennett Street, excuse me, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, and as I'm passing by uh, the police station, Right across the street on the right is Bowles Funeral Home. And I cannot tell you how many times I have written, written by there and, and looked at Bowles Funeral Home and had the thought, 
that I could be sleeping in that place tonight. Tonight. My life could end today. How do I know it will not? I don't. My life is not in my hands. My, my life is in the hands of God. Another thing I do as a common practice is I have water always sitting beside my bed, right beside of my 45 semi-automatic Kimber. <laughs> I have a bottle of water. And I never let that water give out. I always keep it there. And the reason is because a lot of times I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be thirsty. And I'll want to reach over there and get a swallow of water. And one of the reasons I do this, beyond what I've said so far, is because I do not want to ever forget a day of my life. And when I go to sleep at night, that there's a rich man in hell right now. He's been there for over 2,000 years, begging for one drop of water. One drop of water. By the mercy and grace of God, I am not that man, and I will never thirst, never. In the chapters we're going to be looking at, which is prophecy, uh, as we get into the uh, 22nd chapter, it talks about a river of water of life, river of water of life. We'll be looking at that in a few minutes. But I wanted to get some of these other things said to sort of provide some groundwork for this amazing message concerning the future. And I would like to encourage us all uh, to practice maybe some of these things, like getting up early. And sitting down with this book in our lap and studying it, meditating upon it. And then after we do, walking around the rest of the day, thinking about it. Asking the Lord to give us an understanding of things that are not real clear. And so not only the young people in chapel are encouraged to do that. I encourage every member of this church to do this. Because our only acquaintance with the future is in this book. That's it. I do not really watch the news anymore. My wife will tell you. I, sometimes I'll come home and she'll have the news going and 
I listened to it for a few moments. The truth is, I've lost interest. I don't have much interest anymore. Because what's there is just talking about what has happened. I'm concerned about the future. But they don't know. Fox News doesn't know the future. We, we you know, <clears throat> are like this when it comes to the future, when it comes to the elections. What's going to happen to the Congress now that the Republicans have taken the House of Representatives? What, what, what's going to happen? We don't know. We do not know. Ukraine, what, what, what's going to happen to Ukraine? Joe Biden, what, what's going to happen with the Democrats? What's Pelosi going to do next? We don't know. It's not that important. This is what's important. And that's why I believe <clears throat> I've come to this point in my life. I don't care about all this other stuff. And this right here is the future. It sure is. And you can count on it. And what you see on the news and what you worry about is a waste. It's a waste. I do think that it's good to know a little bit about what's happening, at least... Um, in the sense that we can apply what energy we have in a practical way with what is going on and what we can conceivably, at least with our uh, little influence, do. I was at a Return America meeting this uh, past Friday, and that's what we do. We sit at the table and we think about Okay, what do we need to do next that's going to make a difference for good? But we spend most of our time talking about this book and praying that the Lord will help us and give us some kind of insight as to what we need to do. And these men pray, and they're serious about it. And they believe this book. And uh, so the Lord tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. He also has revealed to us something that I think is critical to understand. It's concerning the subject of truth. And I delight in saying what I'm fixing to say. And I say it often nowadays. Truth is not just a mere academic. It's not merely a correct answer. Truth is a person. Very important to understand this. Truth is a person. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. 
be the truth. And so it's very important uh, to understand that the, and I brought a message on it recently, the conversion war. We are so opposed to that kind of thinking in our nature. Uh, we're living this life trying to make everything fit the way we think. And that's a difficult way to live. We have our own sense of the way things should be in the future, the way we would like for it to go. We're absolutely powerless when it comes to that. And as a matter of fact, wrong when it comes to our way of thinking and our sense of right and wrong and uh, truth. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Any of them. And my ways are not your ways, any of them. And so what has to happen for us to be on the Lord's side, which is the best way to say it, not the Lord on our side, but us on his side, is we need to be radically converted from our way of thinking and our way of doing to his way of thinking and his way of doing. That's why Paul wrote the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 13 and said, It is him that worketh in you both to will and to do of whose good pleasure? His, not ours, his. That is a 100% flip what you might say, a 100% conversion. God is so interested, so uninterested in what we think. He said this, Paul said it in that same chapter, let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He didn't say let 80% of his mind be in you. If you follow the, the language, it's 100% of his thinking be in you. And so there's not one thought that you can think that's going to impress God. There's not one way concerning the human will that God is interested in because we don't know the future. But he does. And so when it comes to the will of God, it can be done. It can be done. And that's why in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6, I ask you to maybe make a special mark beside of this statement because it says, 
in Revelation 21 and verse 6, and he said unto me, it is done. Now, how could he say that when that time has not even arrived yet? As a matter of fact, it's more than a thousand years in the future. But in the mind of God, it's not a thousand years in the future. It has already happened. And that's the significance of that statement. It is done. This is a prophecy of the future when it comes to the new heaven and the new earth. So that means we've got to go through the tribulation period. We've got to go through the millennium, a thousand years. And then we're not told how, what kind of time uh, transition is going to be involved before the heavens melt with a fervent heat and the earth and everything is going to be dissolved and then God make a new heaven and a new... We're not told any specifics about that, but we know that it's going to happen. And I believe pretty quickly. But in the mind of God, it's done. This is the difference between the mind of God and the human mind. We do not know a moment from now what our life is going to be like or if we'll even be alive. We don't know. And so... In this conversion war, this is the whole picture of the Bible. Is a difference between God and how he thinks and his way concerning his will as compared to man and how he thinks. And man's will the way he would like for his life to be. God considers it to be a waste to even think about it. And that's why we need to get up early. And we need to get our minds in this book. Because it's the only reality we know anything about available to us is what's said in this book. I do not give Ukraine and what's going on over there much thought at all. I just know that the whole world does not believe this book. But I can tell you without any doubt whatsoever concerning the future, that Ukraine is not going to be victorious over Russia. I can tell you that right now. And I do not have to fear being wrong about it. Because God said it in Ezekiel 38 and 39, what Russia was going to do. And they will invade the Middle East. 
they will. And all their allies with them. Send a book. Read it. And I believe we're going to be gone. I believe the Lord is going to take us out. So listen, every time you hear something about Ukraine, the first thing that ought to come to your mind is the Lord is coming soon. He's coming to take me out of here. The end of the world for you and me is not far away. And we can read these Bible verses like 1 Corinthians 15 and the, the great change in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be changed and we're going to be given a glorified body. And we're going to be taken out of here. And everything in this life that is so precious to us is going to be left right here. And we need to practice thinking about these things this way. And the reason is because if you're not careful, your affections will be attached to the world and the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Absolute waste. It's absolute waste. Jesus Christ is fixing to come back. And there's no doubt about it. Now, um, when it comes to man's relationship with God in this conversion war that's going on, we need to really understand sin from the very beginning. And I tried to explain this by using Lucifer as an illustration. Because what is true of him and what you discover in Scripture concerning Satan is true of you and me. I didn't say that. God did. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He's a liar. He called God a liar. And this was his testimony to Eve, that God is a liar. And uh, so studying what the Bible has to say about Lucifer, the arch enemy of God, is true of you and me. I did not used to know this. I know it now. I did not want to believe it was true. But I have to believe it's true because God said it. And when you read that the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That's talking about you and me. You would think that that's a description of Lucifer. But if we missed it, God gave Mark in Mark chapter 7 uh, a little bit more detail so as to convince us of what we're really like. And not one good thing in Mark chapter 7 is said about a human being. Not one good thing. Out of our minds proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, 
murders, thefts, lasciviousness, an evil eye, all of these things that it talks about, 13 of them. Not one good thing is said. And so we're going to go to God like Lucifer did and question what we said at the beginning of this Sunday school lesson, that truth is a person. Truth is a person. Do we really understand the nature of truth, the nature of that statement and that claim, truth? Well, the Lord helps us enter into it. The truth is one. There's only one God, and he said there's none else. And so when it comes to the person of God, there's one. There are not two. The way we're to understand that, this, is there are not two opinions. There are not two thoughts. There are not two ways. Because if you have two, you don't have one. Well, when Lucifer had his conflict with God, he came with his thought and his way and exalted that above the one who said, I am the truth. It is as plain as it can be in black and white. Satan believed that he was the singular truth. The singular way. The singular one that would define what truth is. He wanted to be the truth. Now folks, what has just been said is a perfect description of every single one of us in this room from the day we were born. Has there ever been a will that we appreciated more than our own? Even when it came to our parents and our associations, our, our friendships, everything is based on... Um, our will, and whether or not it's going to conflict with what somebody else wants and their will. And the day that there's the slightest conflict between what this person wants and that person wants, that is the day that there's a division. And one goes one way, the other goes the other way, because every man worships his own will and what that person wants. Everybody's that way. And it's satanic to the core. And it even reaches into heaven in our relationship with God. It sure does. And we want his truth to be identical with our truth. And we want his way to be identical with what our will is for the future and for ourselves. And we're trying to convert him into thinking the way we do, 
and doing what we want. And many prayers are shaped around that kind of thinking. We don't care about what God wants. Not in our nature, we do not. All we know about is our little life, our little world, and what we want right now. And we've got a little space of time, just a little tiny space of time in the face of eternity. And what are we doing with it? Consuming every thought and every energy on what we want and could care less about why God even created us. He created us to serve him, to love him more than anything else. But it's not in our nature. And that's why the whole Bible is about conversion, conversion. And it's radical. It's not a little thing. It's huge. It's a huge thing. I'm afraid that so many people who go to church and will go to church today are going to be so small in their whole thinking about what our relationship with God should be like that messages will be preached by pastors where they repeat for the 10,000th time the simple plan of salvation, how Christ died on the cross to wash away our sins and God so loved the world and how much he loves us. Very few preachers will ever even touch the subject of the false profession of faith. Not even close. They'll tell them that all you got to do is stand up, every head bowed, every eye closed. And if you sense in yourself a need to come forward, then you just come forward right down here to the altar. And either I'll speak with you or I'll get one of the leaders in the church to speak with you. And they'll get you to say a few words. And then the preacher will pronounce you saved. And then you'll get baptized. And salvation, listen to me, salvation will be linked to the day that you got up out of your seat, came forward in the meeting, heard a few things by some church leaders, were baptized, and the preacher told you that you were saved. And so this is your hope for eternity. The preacher said, I'm saved. I got up out of my seat. I walked forward in the meeting. I heard what the man said. And this works. And it has nothing to do with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing to do with it. Now, 
We need to understand that we need to be one with him. And we need to prove it every day in our lives by getting in this book, being consumed with how he thinks, and being consumed with what he wants us to do. He created us for a reason of his own. He did not create us and give us life to follow after our favorite thing. He said to Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth from the womb, I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. That statement is true of every single person that has ever lived. We are to be witnesses unto him. Prophets subject to the prophets. And you can't go out and, and tell people about the future as God has said it until you study this book and know what the future is according to the word of the Lord. And every single one of us are called to be prophets. Teaching others how to think about life. How to have an expected end. But how are most people living? Most people are living following the money. The money. Follow the money. If you want to know how to solve certain crimes, it's almost proverbial. Follow the money. Study the motives. When it comes to finding criminals, you gotta you gotta have a motive. You gotta have a motive. And so often the crime is associated with the things of this world, what people want and the conflict that they have because somebody's getting in the way of what they want. They don't like to hear that. And so we need to understand the first original sin with Lucifer because it's a study of you and me. And we have to understand that God does not look down from heaven and see in us anything that he wants. And there's nothing you can give him. He said, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Why? Because I own the cattle on a thousand hills. What can you give me? You can't give me anything. You can't give me one thought. You can't give me one way that I'll appreciate as a matter of fact, if you want to know what I think about you, die daily. 
die. And in the place of that dead body, I'm going to come with my whole life, the very life of Jesus Christ, to be your life, to be your life. That is radical conversion. Radical conversion. Who believes that? Who believes that? Not many. Not many. And so we resist this kind of teaching to the point that we hate God. I didn't say that. He did. Turn with me to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 3. That familiar verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But then he sort of shifts from his attitude to man's attitude. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light, that is truth, is coming to the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. He hates God. Neither cometh to the light. That's why a lot of people don't come to church, and especially this one. lest his deeds should be reproved. And we don't want our deeds reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. It's God doing it in them. Folks, this is radical, radical conversion. And so when we read about how Lucifer wanted to ascend up to be like the Most High, that he wanted to sit in on the very throne of God as God, that's a description of every single human being that has ever been born. And that's why Paul wrote the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and talked about the subtlety 
of Satan, the subtlety of Satan. And how he would entice you into worshiping another Jesus. Who is that other Jesus? Have you ever really thought about it? There's a Jesus of the Bible, but who would the other Jesus be? It'd be you and me. What does the name Jesus mean? It means God the Savior. That's what it means. And so what, what, is, what is Paul telling the people at Corinth? He's saying, okay, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But you believe you can save yourself. You don't need him. All you need is your thoughts about what God is like, and we don't have a clue because he's the one that said it. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And so what we have is an invented, an invented Jesus in our own head of how we think he is, and that's another Jesus. It's not Jesus of the Bible. I was told by somebody the other day that a church up the street doesn't have a problem with drinking alcoholic wine, maybe even beer. I don't know. Somebody that's been in that church said that to me. I know Baptist church where the preacher was drinking beer at a wedding I photographed. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. When God said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, he didn't say bring a six-pack with you. I mean, can you imagine the God of the universe who would come into this world and die for us upon Calvary's cross, encouraging you to get something that would dull the mind and the senses about His explanation of what he was going to do on the cross of Calvary for you and me. Sobriety is what's needed. Sobriety. We need to be able to think. We need to be able to reason. And young people that are on alcohol or drugs or whatever, they don't have a clue what they're doing when it comes to what this message is teaching. And so in this conversion war, the war is really between two versions of God. The version of this book, as God reveals himself to the world. And the version of man as he conceives God to be in his own head. 
And it's going on all over this town this morning. A different Jesus is being preached in practically every church. That's the truth. We need to thank God every day and continually for his mercy and grace in bringing us to this place. Calvary Memorial Church. Because one day we're going to ride by on Bennett Street and see Bowles Funeral Home. And what we imagined is going to actually happen. And we're going to be gone. And I submit to you that the only thing in the world that matters is us having Christ's life as our life. And in the meantime, trying to get everybody that we can convinced that they need to come to Calvary. We need to be inviting people on a regular basis to come to this church. Come to this church. Come to Sunday school. What's wrong with that? Well, um, there's other things that could be said about that. I want to uh, repeat something that I said recently, I think, in a Sunday school message. I don't remember where anymore. Um, it had to do with 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, where you have that little phrase, concerning the angels and how the angels desire to look into this gospel message. They have this desire to look into it. And um, there's a lot about this that I'm fixing to say that I do not yet understand. Um, I was talking with my son Caleb about it recently and and he had some good insights into some different aspects of that statement. But the thing that I brought out about the angels desiring to look into the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the shed blood is because they were mystified with their knowledge of God as they had it, because the angels, the cherubim, that, whose wings were overspread over that ark and that mercy seat, they were looking transfixed at that ark. And uh, I think they were mystified at how man created in the image of God would have slaughtered him when he came and manifest the intensity of hatred that they did toward him when they marred his visage more than that of any man. Where they spit on him 
where they beat his body and did everything but break his bones. It was a bloody sight. A bloody sight. It was a massacre. And I think that those cherubims are looking down in wonderment as to how the very ones that he came to save would respond to him that way. But let me offer to you an answer. It's because in our nature, that's how much we hate him. It wasn't Lucifer that crucified Jesus Christ. All we know about Lucifer when he rebelled was that he rebelled. We took it further than a thought toward God. Our way was to get our hands on him and rip him to shreds. You don't find that concerning Lucifer. But you certainly find it concerning man. And I believe one of the reasons the first occupants of the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet, which are two human beings, is because the Lord is reminding us once again of the so great a death that he delivered us from. And the so great salvation that can be ours if we'll just receive the gift because that's the only way you can have it. It's the gift. You can't do anything for me. I can do everything for you. Our time is gone. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Benny, dismiss us, bro. Father, thank you for your many blessings. We thank you so much for your word, the truth that's contained therein. We're so grateful that we hear the truth. We pray that you would help us to um, make right decisions in our hearts and our lives not based on what we think because we know that our thoughts are not your thoughts but on what you think and allowing you to um, put your mind into us and that's because we are willing to submit ourselves to you help us to do that today Lord um, we pray that you would help us to honor you in the, uh, in the service and we pray that your, your will will be done and thank you for our pastor and pray that you would bless him as he brings the message this morning we ask these things in Jesus name Thank